Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. I'm Scott Miller, your weekly host, and if you detect a little bit of harshness or hoarseness in my voice this morning, it's probably because I'm hosting uh, maybe one too many uh, book clubs or radio programs, podcasts, and such, but today I insisted on conducting this interview because we have the honor of Robin Sharma joining us, who I'll introduce in just a few moments, and I hope that he might even agree to be featured in the third edition of the book that I've just released for HarperCollins called Master Mentors. The first volume is out, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. This book is a light, breezy, easy read where I take 30 of my favorite interviews from the first season and write a chapter about a single insight 30 people that were on the podcast shared with their permission and their editorial influence and control. The book has done extremely well. I have just finished Volume 2, Master Mentors Volume 2, with 30 new Master Mentors and 30 new insights, and now just beginning the third volume that will come out in 2023. Perhaps Robin might agree to have me feature him in Volume 3. You know Robin Sharma because the man has written multiple books, many books. His books have sold over 20 million copies, of course, including the 5 a.m. club and the seminal bestseller, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Today, Robin is joining us from his home in Italy, where we're going to talk about his newest phenomenal release, The Everyday Hero Manifesto, Activate Your Positivity, Maximize Your Productivity, Serve the World. Robin Sharma, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, it's a real pleasure to be with you, and congratulations uh, on, on all the success uh, for the podcast. Well, I appreciate that, sir. Um, as you know, when you do something 200 times and you stick to it and you don't listen to your detractors, but you uh, go where your promoters are, you can pretty much turn anything into a success. So I appreciate that. We're very honored for the millions of people that watch and listen and share and post and review, and also those that give me feedback of which there is no shortage, both positive and critical. Robin, today we're going to speak about your newest book, The Everyday Hero Manifesto, who I think personally I have made this um, some success in the last 48 hours as I have finished um, reading it and promoting it on my own social media and texting everybody in the company, you have to buy this book of the last 250 books that I have read for the multiple podcasts and shows that I host. Um, This is arguably the most influential book of the 250. It's fairly episodic, which I like. It has um, dozens of chapters that are, you know, one, two, and three pages long. It's very digestible. I think it is a, a masterpiece, not just the content, but how you organized it. You wrote it for the busy person. You voted for the person who perhaps is caught up in the busyness of being busy. We'll talk about that in today's conversation. First, Robin, um, most people I know have read the book, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Would you take a few minutes and kind of walk us through who you are and how did you come to be an author and how did you come to write this book? And then we'll get into the key highlights I found fascinating in your current book. Well, thank you so much, Scott. I, I'm, a, I'm a family man uh, and, and I really pray that I'm a humble servant. I stood in Nelson Mandela's prison cell a number of years ago, and I learned that he was described as a humble servant. I'm, I'm no, in no way comparing myself to Nelson Mandela, but I think that's a, a great goal to have. So I used to be a litigation lawyer. I come from very humble beginnings. 
I had um, done everything that people said I should do in order to become a success. I went into law school. I was working with a big law firm and, you know, I had a nice car, beautiful place to live. The only problem is I'd wake up every morning and I'd look in the bathroom mirror and I didn't like the man that was looking back at me. And, you know, as you know so well, what's the point of success without a sense of soulfulness and a sense of meaning. So what I did was I went on an odyssey of sorts and I started experimenting with, you know, how do I live a better life? How do I handcraft more meaning? How do I, you know, find more joy in my life? How do I find more leadership, real leadership? And my my journey led me to decide to write a book. I self-published it in a 24-hour copy shop. My mother was my first editor. My father helped me sell it at service clubs. My first seminar, 23 people attended. 21 of those people were my family members. But um, that book uh, started to spread through word of mouth. And one day I ended up in a bookstore where there were about four copies on consignment. And I asked the bookstore manager, can I, can I sign the four copies? Because someone once told me when an author signs a book, the bookstore can no longer return it. And so I was signing these books at the front of the store, and I noticed there was a gentleman in a green trench coat. Uh, it was a rainy night. gentleman in a green trench coat was looking at me, and he was smiling. He walked over to me, and he said, hmm, the monk who sold his Ferrari, what an interesting title. Tell me about your story. Well, I said, I'm a litigation lawyer. I don't really find it very fulfilling. I've self-published this book. No one gives me much of a chance. Some people even laugh at the title, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. But I believe that, you know, the, the book can help people. And he said, wow, that's really interesting. And he pulled out his wallet and he handed me his business card. And on it, it said Ed Carson, President Harper Collins. And uh, about three weeks later, Scott Harper Collins bought the world rights to the book for $7,500. And um, that, that, that caused me to leave my law career. And the book started selling through word of mouth. It's now sold many, many millions of copies, and it led me into a whole new life. I'm delighted you took the time to share that story because no doubt there are at least two people listening and watching today that have a book in them, that want to write a book, that have written a book and it's not selling, that are trying to find a publisher or a local independent bookstore to carry their book. And your success trajectory is not so dissimilar to a lot of amazing authors that had a dream, they had a passion, they had a joy, and they just stuck to it. And today we'll talk about perseverance. Robin, today's interview is going to be a little bit different than some of the other ones where I have found 12, it could have been four times that many, but I found 12 what I thought were transformational insights that you share in your book. Again, the book is very episodic. It's a collection of, of, of writings and, and musings and insights and wisdom that you wrote over some time. And what I'm going to do for the next 30 so minutes, I'm going to tell the listeners what chapter this is in, what the title is. I'm going to pitch the concept to you and ask you to follow up with a one or two minute expansion. Put some, quote, texture on the bone, some meat on the bone, if you will. First, let's start. Chapter two is titled, Being Faithful to Your Ideals is a Force Multiplier. And the concept is... When no one believes in you is when you need to believe in you. When no one believes in you is when you most need to believe in you. Riff on that. You know, we live in a world where 
we've forgotten that every visionary was initially ridiculed before they were revered. And I think any big idea, whether it's the internet, whether it's putting a human being on the moon, whether it's a startup, whether it's a running a marathon, when an, an, an idea is disruptive and it meets the status quo, it gets laughed at. And I think what that chapter is really all about, it's reminding yourself that you know, you have an idea, trust the idea, trust yourself. And if people laugh at the idea, it's probably a very, it's a very good idea. What happens to most people is they have an idea that will take their life or their leadership or their career to a completely new level. And on their first encounter with cynicism or criticism, they believe the opinions of other people. One thing I've learned is you know, everyone has an opinion and an opinion of another person is just their opinion. Let's not confuse it with the truth. So one of the things that makes an everyday hero is you, even if you're an army of one, you believe in yourself, even if no one believes in, in you until through your execution around your mighty ambition, everyone begins to believe in you and celebrate you. Robin, talk about why you titled this book, The Everyday Hero Manifesto. Well, I mean, I think right now, look, as we all know, we're we're in the middle of a raging pandemic. We've got climate change. We've got wars. We've got polarization. We've got social unrest, and it just goes on. And what I think most people long for, maybe even ache for, are real heroes. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela's Mother Teresa's, Hedy Lamar's, you know, Joan of Arc's. We, we long for heroes that inspire us and and remind us of what the mountaintop looks like and the most noble of human values and what the everyday hero manifesto is about is why wait for those people to show up when we all have it in us if we install the right habits and the right beliefs and we do the right things every day we can be the heroes that we're waiting for it doesn't mean we're going to lead a nation or a fortune 100 company or make our mark on history but every, I don't think there's any extra people on the planet today. And every person with a beating heart has heroism inside of us. And for one person, it could be you start a startup or you, you lead a team of people. But for another person, it could be you lead a family or you lead yourself or you lead your, your vision for the future. You could be sweeping a street, but you could sweep the street like Martin, like, like Beethoven created Moonlight Sonata. And that's really, you know, I think it's a, it's a great time in the world for us to remember we don't need to wait for the heroes to show up. I think it's it falls on our shoulders to materialize our own unique form of heroism, whatever that looks like. I'm going to take that a bit deeper here. The next uh, quote from your book reads, Trust not your detractors. Pay no attention to your diminishers. Ignore your discouragers. They do not know the wonders within you. Talk about that through the lens of um, Cora Greenaway. Well, the first thing I'd say is um, critics are dreamers who got scared and never got back up. You know, cynics are degraded dreamers. And so, I mean, when we were born, we, we were born into awe and wonder. We had sparkle in our eyes. We wanted to be, 
leaders. We wanted to be astronauts. We wanted to be athletes. We wanted to do amazing things. And then as we journey through life, we all get hurt. We all get bruised and we pick up the brainwashing and the heartwashing of the world around us, whether that's from our early caregivers or whether it's from our peers or our teachers or the media. And, and, and part of what the book is, is all about is remembering who you truly, truly are. I think a lot of people did have these amazing dreams. A lot of us were very intimate with our gifts and our talents before the world hurt us. And so I was in grade five and not a lot of people believed in me, Scott. I didn't fit in with the cool crowd. I marched to the beat of my own drummer. I had my own visions and I was sort of quirky. I mean, in many ways, I'm an artist more than you know anything else. And, and I didn't think a lot of people believed in me. And that's sort of a hard place to be when you're alone, when you feel you're alone and you, and you don't really feel that you fit in. And I know there's a lot of people probably watching that, that feel that way, especially in the world that we're in right now. Well, I had a, a grade five teacher who believed in me when very few people believed in me. And her name, as you say, was Cora Greenaway. Cora Greenaway was my grade five history teacher. Um, and the picture in the book is when she was 101 years old. And she, she basically said to me, you know, you have something within you and I believe in you and I'm going to spend this year encouraging you versus discouraging you. And I think that's the responsibility of all of us to see the best in people who have never caught a glimpse of the best within themselves. I think the, the true job of leadership is to shine a light on the gifts and talents that people have never owned or never known they had. And, and yes, that's what she did. She was one of the great mentors of my life. And incidentally, about th two or three years ago, I did some research on her. I was just wondering like, what happened to Cora Greenaway. And I, I learned through my research that when she was a young woman, she, she, she was Dutch and she used to go under the enemy lines in World War II and she would save children who were going to be taken to Nazi death camps. And um, I mean, it just, this was my grade five history teacher. And so, yes, she had a profound influence on my life. And, you know, your, 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 your new book is about, I believe it, master mentors. And, you know, all it takes is a few great mentors to change our destiny. And I had Cora Greenaway. I've had some other great mentors in my life. I would encourage anyone watching, find a mentor who will reveal a new way of looking at the world. In this world of so much negativity, they will show you how to see possibility. I think the world is messy right now. And I think the world also has so much to celebrate. And I've never seen so much opportunity for leadership right now. I've never seen so much opportunity to develop people. I've never seen so much opportunity. Even if we can't go out, we can go within and develop our character and what I call in the everyday hero manifesto, our mindset, our heart set, our health set, and our soul set. And if we do do that, we will use this period of time on the time horizon of civilization to build ourselves up. And I think actually that's the number one job of any leader and human being. Robin, unlike you, my books have not yet sold 20 million copies. I'm on my way. But like you, I am a creative type. I'm an innovator. I'm a risk taker. Um, and as a result of that, there is, of course, a fair amount of vitriol and jealousy and criticism and veiled you know, people with nefarious attempts to bring me down. And perhaps it's why these first couple of chapters really resonated with me. Last one on this theme. You say, please protect your respect for yourself. 
and for your most honest artistry above the fear-fueled, impossibility-filled pronouncements of people who are masters of theory, yet creators of nothing. Well, you know, you bring, you bring up a great point. If you're, if you're going to do anything daring, if you're going to do anything beautiful, if you're going to push magic into the world, the trolls will come out to play. And the first thing, one of the, there's actually a chapter in the book called, as you, as you know, called The Troll Deconstruction. And J.K. Rowling said, for some to love you, some must loathe you. Bob Dylan said, don't criticize what you don't understand. So if you do something really disruptive, you do something really powerful, you know you've pushed magic into the world, intensity of the word you use, vitriol. I mean, I, I, what I'm trying to say, I don't know if it's very elegant, but the more people hate on you, the more people laugh at you, the more people criticize you, the more you can be assured you've pushed something into the world that is very disruptive, very innovative, and very beautiful. You know, light attracts angels and light attracts moths. And so one of the first things I would say is Take, take the high road and let and let karma do your dirty work. And that's not my idea, but I think it's really good. It's like, just keep on trying to do your best. Don't spend time responding to the trolls. Just ignore them. Keep on optimizing your craft. Keep on serving more people. Keep on believing in your mountaintop. Stay focused because every time you allow a cynic, a, a, an energy vampire or a dream stealer to slow you down and to deflate your ethical ambitions, you know, they win. And so for you on your next book, me on my, and by the way, you know, I, I, I don't write books and I know you get this. I don't write books to, to be on bestseller lists. I write because I have no choice but to write. I don't know how not to write. It's how I, it's how I express my truth. And, you know, I find the more you focus on sales numbers, the less numbers you'll have because I believe your focus and your time and your talent is focused on the bestseller list versus focused on doing the work that will get you on the bestseller list as a byproduct. Um, but you, you make a, a big point about, about trolls and energy vampires. And I think you can change the world or you can pay attention to your cynics and detractors. I don't think you can do both. There are 101, what I might call micro chapters in this book. Chapter four is titled, It's Okay Not to Be Okay. And the phrase that I liked from this was, a difficult day for the ego is a splendid day for the soul. Sure. Well, I think our, our society tells us if, if you're having a hard day or if you're having a hard decade, if you're sad, if you're angry, if you feel guilty, you feel disappointed, you feel shame, there's something wrong with you. What I've learned is the very nature of being fully human means you, you're going to experience the high level emotions of gratitude and awe and wonder and joyfulness. And we're also going to feel sadness and difficulty and pain and confusion. And I, I just, 
that chapter really in, in the Everyday Hero Manifesto is my experienced truth of going through life, experiencing times on the mountaintop and times in the valley of darkness. You know, I talk a lot about uh, in the book, I talk about some of my tragedies and I would not trade those tragedies for anything because my pain has purified me. And what I was trying to identify in that chapter is we actually grow the most as leaders. We grow the most as artists. We grow the most as human beings when we are fully intimate with the full range of our emotional life. And that brings up another point that I really focus on in the Everyday Hero Manifesto, which is so many people talk about mindset, but I think mindset was only 25% of the personal mastery equation. Mindset is our psychology. We also have an emotional life, which I call our heart set. We also have a physical life, which is our health set. We also have a spiritual life, which is essential to attend to if we want to be great leaders and mighty titans and world changers. And it's when we work on all four of those, what I call interior empires, that we really become much more productive, effective, and, and ha have uh, high impact. But the point I'm trying to make is let's not repress our human emotions because most of our society teaches us you have to be positive every morning and dancing, you know, in the rainbows to live a soaring life. I mean, Nelson Mandela became Nelson Mandela in the suffering of Robben Island for 18 years of his 27 years of confinement. I'm reading a book right now by Martin Luther King Jr. You know, we can't wait. Martin Luther King Jr. became Martin Luther King Jr. In, in the humiliation and the suffering of, of his movement, what he was trying to do. Rosa Parks became Rosa Parks the day she wouldn't go to, she refused to go to the back of the bus. And so let us embrace our suffering and let us embrace our joy and let us own our human, our humanhood and, and, and not feel bad or, or wrong if, we, if we're not always positive every single day. Robin, I too had the privilege of, um, of standing in uh, Nelson Mandela's cell in Robin Island. And it was, you know, it's, it leaves you speechless. What also was compelling in my experience there is they took us on a bus out to where all the prisoners would basically crush rock all day long. It was like this big quarry. And it was for as, as far as the eye could see were just these sort of, I think they were white rocks where they would just pick at them sort of all day long. I forgot how long... President Mandela served in that prison. Do you remember? Was it, it was over a decade? Was it not? He, Scott, he, he he served in on Robben Island for for eighteen years. He was in prison for twenty seven years, and you know that place that you're talking about is you know that's the limestone quarry. Um, Mr. Mandela lost a lot of his eyesight. His lungs were damaged, and as you know, he was forced. He and the other political prisoners were forced to chip on that stone that you speak of because it had no meaning. Right. The stone wasn't used for anything. So he spent seven years of his life chipping away at that stone. And it was, it was part of the, the torture, the, the psychological torture designed to break him because his days were being used for nothing. But, you know, I think a, a lot of the book is we have a choice every day. We can be a victim or we can, we can, resign ourselves to victimhood or we can show leadership. And what he did was he used the suffering to become Nelson Mandela. You know, um, I spoke to someone who was very close to him and she said, no, Mr. She said, Nelson Mandela became Nelson Mandela in prison. 
you know, they, they didn't let him leave prison after his eldest son was killed in the car accident. They wouldn't let him attend the funeral. And yet, as you know, when he left, when he became president of South Africa, he invited the prosecutor who had yeah. sought the death penalty to dinner. Yeah. And one of the jailers who, who kept him in prison, he put him almost in the front row of the inauguration. And he was asked, why would you possibly do that? He said, because if I didn't, I would still be in prison. So, yes, the world has a lot of trouble right now, but we can use, and I think this is a key element of leadership, using adversity as fuel and fodder to build our character to, to note the fears we might be facing right now and to explore those fears and then transcend them, to, to see where we might be operating as victims in this world right now, whether it's, oh, well, you know, the economy is difficult or competition is hard or we can't find the right people or my people are depleted. You know, well, this is the time that heroes come out to play. This time is made for heroes. And so we, we are faced with an incredible opportunity right now, and I think it's important that we don't miss it. You have a chapter you call The Victim to Hero Leap. The victim has a mindset of can't, makes excuses, lives in the past, is busy being busy, takes from the world. The hero, conversely, has a mentality of can delivers results, makes their future brighter, is productive, and gives to the world. The quote I loved from this chapter was, can't is a tower that victims lock themselves into in the prayer that this will protect them from the danger or risk. You know, there's, there's a, an acronym that I teach in my methodology, and it's APR, Absolute Personal Responsibility. And I think we shift into the fullness of our adulthood when we assume personal responsibility for the way that our life looks. I think a victim, and I'm not, I'm not um, judging, I'm just reporting, but you can tell a vic victim in action because they, they, they BCE, they blame, they complain, and they excuse. BCE, blame, complaint, and excuse. Every time we point, every time we blame the pandemic or we blame a family member or we blame a teammate or we blame a boss or we blame the past, we are literally giving our power to change the world and to change our worlds to the thing that we blame. And we, get our, we take our power back when we stop blaming and we start realizing we do create everything in our life. We do create our destiny. Of course, like we don't create every possible condition. Look at the world right now. But we do, we do have a lot of power over the way that we intersect with our lives. Having said that, I believe, and, and I hope you don't mind me getting a little philosophical, I believe we have to do our part. I believe very much in personal responsibility. We must, you know, get up early, work hard, stand for mastery, push magic into the world, be an encourager versus a discourager, treat our family well, guard our good health. So we must do those things. Having said that, I do believe there is a destiny as well. I don't quite understand it, but I think we have to do our part and then, you know, let destiny do the rest. Robert, I want to go deeper on this. I'm going to read a long passage in the book, and I want you to riff on this. You can make excuses or you can change our world. You don't get to do both. You can spot a victim 
by watching how they have a near instant reason to explain why their life isn't working, which never has anything to do with them. Such people have recited these excuses so many times, they have actually brainwashed themselves into believing they are true. They have practiced their realization so extremely well, they've risen to the pro-athlete level at offering up their explanations for their own mediocrity. And this is my second favorite chapter in the book, second favorite, because it really had me think about the words that I use. You have a chapter on how important the words you use are, even words that might be colloquial words we use around go crush it or kill it. And you are quite disciplined around the words you use that might be received as being, you know, you know, modern day compliments, but have a, a, a negative tone to them. This spoke to me about, by the way, I'm a big believer in personal responsibility, sometimes to the extreme, about making sure that I've not rehearsed subconsciously, consciously excuses in my life that become natural parts now of who I am. Well, I mean, there's a lot in, in, in what you just said. There's, there's a lot, and there's a lot of wisdom. I, I agree with you so much. Um, part of what you're referring to is victim speak versus leader talk. Um, and you're right. We live in a world where it's like, you know, and, 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 and in that chapter, I, I was like, oh, I, lo- I love your sneakers. They're sick. Oh, you did a great presentation. You killed it. Oh, that team meeting you did you murdered it and then in the chapter in, in the everyday era manifesto it's like murder sick killed it you know those are not great words those are depleting words and i think words are very powerful if you look at the great leaders of and the great history makers what they mostly did was they led their movement through the power of their words so words are incredibly powerful even for the subconscious mind <clears throat> the larger point i think you're speaking to is 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 victimhood and and I don't want in any way make make it sound like you know people who are operating as victims are bad people of course they're not um, and this is the power of one of the things I talk about in some of the chapters trauma I talk about micro trauma every six people often think oh trauma oh I haven't been abused oh I haven't had this I haven't had a major catastrophe we all experience micro trauma from the moment we leave the perfection of childhood we get cut off in traffic we don't get invited to our best friend's birthday party Uh, We don't get the promotion. Whatever it is, we pick up trauma. And if we don't know how to deal with this trauma, it accumulates within us and becomes, Carl Jung called it the shadow side. And all of that suppressed emotion that we don't deal with because it's not talked about, we're not taught how to move through it, becomes suppressed. And in, in the book, I called it the field of hurt. And this, I think, is one of the missing links of elite performance and productivity and leadership. There's so many books on, okay, here's how you set up your day and, the, and routines. But if we have this dark emotional energy from the macro and micro trauma that we've picked up through our life, then it will limit our energy. It will block intimacy with our creativity. We will not be elite performers because we're basically sabotaging and at war with ourselves. So people who are stuck in victimhood, they are trying their best. I think it was Maya Angelou, the great American poet, and she said, as we can know better, we can do better. And so people who are operating as victims, they're doing the best they can do based on the level of consciousness they're at. And they just, 
We all receive negative programming. We are all taught to fit into the crowd. Most of us are taught to, you know, not to dream too big, not to shine too brightly. And then we arrive at a point in our lives where we listen to what people have told us. But, you know, I, I think about, I, I was recently in a uh, European city and, um, and I wrote about this also in the book in, in a, because I've, I've been to this city before and I've seen this and this happen. And late at night, you see these, all the stores are closed, but you see these chestnut sellers. And, you know, it, it's like when I think about victims, victims are always complaining and saying there's no opportunity. And yet you see these chestnut sellers, you know, late at night doing their work, like it's the most important work in the world. And I think it's a great example of personal responsibility and leadership. In fact, you have a whole chapter about one particular chestnut seller that is quite humbling. Uh, I could go deeper on every topic, but there, our time is tight that I want to get past a couple of other ones. I mentioned that that previous chapter was my second favorite chapter because now chapter seven is my favorite chapter. It is at this chapter where I stopped and texted close to 25 people and said, you have to buy this book tonight. I stopped and read chapter seven twice and I've thought about it deeply. It's called, That Time My Private Journals Were Taken. Would you share the gravitas of what this means in your world and how all of us can benefit from your mindset about this? The chapter again is titled, wow. The Time My Private Journals Were Taken. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm a big journaler. I mean, here's even one of my recent journals with all my, I, I just, I, I love journaling. I journal my hopes, my dreams. I journal my, my pains. I journal gratitude. I journal how I want to live a, day, a certain day. I journal about the man I want to become. I journal about the leader I pray I will, I will be. So I've been journaling daily, all, daily for years and years and years. And so chapter seven of the Everyday Hero Manifesto is where I explain one day my uh, 10 years, approximately 10 years worth of my private journals where I sh I've shared like confusion and deep pain and str spiritual struggles and, you know, Great moments. I mean, 10 years of my journals, let's just say, because I want to be very polite, um, let's just say they vanished. And I, I would bet a lot of the people who follow your wonderful podcast on leadership understand the power of journaling. And I bet you when they hear this, you know, they would just sort of be terrified that because I hear this all the time. Well, you know, I, I want to journal, but what would happen if anyone ever saw my most intimate ruminations and thoughts and 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 writings and so yes 10 years of my journals vanished and um i laugh about it now because i've worked through it i understood that it was an incredible gift in my life because it taught me one of the greatest of all leadership lessons i think lessons that of human of human beings and spiritual lessons which is the importance of letting go all of the great spiritual traditions talk about detachment right? It's like be in the world, not of the world. Do your best. Yes, try to be great. Push amazing work. You know, all those kinds of things, but don't, but hold on to those ambitions with a very loose grip because life has a mind of its own. And what we often think is a failure is often 
one of the greatest opportunities that can happen to us. And because of my 10 years of journals vanishing, I had to learn to, through prayer, through meditation, through journaling, um, through working with spiritual counselors, I, had, I was blessed with the opportunity to arrive at a place of peace where I understood, so what if people see the inside of my journals? They will see someone who has longings and wants to be a great human being, probably will never get there, but also someone who struggled and had confusions and had weaknesses and fears. And that just makes me human. So I think the larger point for everyone listening and watching is, you know, it's that old line, a bad day for the ego is a great day for the soul. And life has this incredible orchestration and symphony that, you know, when we look back at it, we understand our most painful experiences actually served us extraordinarily well to mold our character and to shape our philosophy and to help us reclaim gifts and talents and heroism that we never would have experienced had we not had the so-called tragedy or bad experience. Robin, your deliberate use of the word vanished is not lost on me. In fact, the person who reads this book recognizes that you take extraordinary deliberation with what you think, how you behave, what you say, where you invest your time. You are perhaps one of the most deliberate people I am just coming to know. You are very intentional in this book. You, on some cases, write out someone's name, and other times you don't. Sometimes you refer to a city, other times you call it a European city. That was not by accident. You've been very deliberate around when you choose to lift up and how you choose not to diminish or um, antagonize someone. And that was not, again, lost on me, because as I read your book, I thought about, you know, there's times when I could take a jab at someone and... Would Robin do that? No, Robin would choose to say they vanished versus most of us would say this person stole them. I'm guessing you know what happened to these journals. You don't go into it deep in the book. You use the point to teach the lesson. And you may not like these terms, but forgive me. You have fame. You have influence. You have some celebrity. You've sold 20 million copies of your books. You're at the pinnacle of what most people in the speaking career would want to achieve. I imagine what's in those journals was quite precious and tender to you, yet you chose to release the intentions of the other person and choose to manifest, so what can this do for me? There was a famous Ugandan football player named Stone Kimbati that Dr. Covey began to highlight as a transition figure. And Stone was famous for saying many things, including sometimes a disappointment turns into an appointment. And it seems like you use most of the disappointments in your life to figure out what can I learn from this? Well, what's what, I mean, thank you for what you said. And what's the alternative? If I don't use my pain as purification, if I don't use my adversity as a platform for possibility, if I don't use my stumbling my, my, my stumbling blocks as stepping stones then i'm going to i'm not going to grow and i'm not going to advance and i'm going to be living in the past so i i think it's i think a great part of leadership is taking celebrating the good times and using the hurts to 
to make you better and to make your life better and to make your leadership better, et cetera, on, on the fact that I have influence on a platform and not using it to, to in any way hurt anyone. I think life is too short to hurt someone, you know, ultimately Scott, I'm my father's son and my father, you know, he, he, he I'm, I'm far from perfect, but he, you know, he, he, always, he, he, he's a true gentleman and, and, you know, I think it was Confucius said it well. And I think about this often. Confucius said, before you go off to seek revenge, it's best to dig two graves. And so I would rather lick my wounds and turn the difficulty into more leadership and more inner strength and move on with my ethical ambitions than argue with people or stay stuck in the past. And then you start off by saying I'm very intentional and and deliberate and, and I think you were suggesting discipline and all that kind of thing. And what I would say is I'm very intentional and deliberate and disciplined when I'm intentional, deliberate and disciplined. And this speaks to one of the key elements in, in the Everyday Hero Manifesto about the twin cycles of elite performance. When I am writing or when I am, you know, in that high excellence cycle, yes, I'm very focused on running my routines, etc. And then what I do is I take the time to incubate and take the time to rest and take the time to recover. And I believe that artistry and creativity and leadership is a series of seasons. There are great, there are, there are times to plant and work very hard on the harvest. And I think we must give ourselves permission without feeling guilt and shame for those seasons of incubate, uh, those fallow seasons. You know, it's in the fallow seasons that the harvest is growing. You're, you're, you're an author, you're a very successful author. It's when you're not writing your book that you're writing, that the ideas are incubating for your next masterpiece. And when I study, and I've mentored a lot of the most successful leaders in the world, when I study the best artists, for example, these people give themselves permission to push their masterwork. And when they are doing their masterwork, it is a monomaniacal obsession. But once it's done, it could be a year, two years, five years. They're in the fallow season and they're traveling and they're having four hour long dinners you know, on a Greek island with the people they love and they're reading books and they're thinking and they're journaling. And I think living like that is a very soulful, beautiful way to live versus this hustle and grind. A lot of the everyday hero manifesto is like, I don't subscribe to the hustle and grind culture. I think rest is not a luxury, it's a necessity. I'm mindful of our time. Um, I'm kind of emotional listening to you because I wish you were my coach. I wish you were my marriage counselor. I wish you were my friend. <laughs> um, you are my friend. Chapter 15, what J.K. Rowling taught me about relentlessness. And then I'll end with one final question for you. You know, I mean, J.K. Rowling, one of the most successful authors in the world, the mastermind behind Harry Potter, etc. And I mean, in, in that chapter, I write about her back, her origin story. She conceived Harry Potter, the whole, the whole idea, on a delayed train ride, I believe it was from Manchester to London. She was, she was on welfare. No one gave her a chance. She was rejected by, I don't know, it was like 
25 publishers, everyone would laugh at her. Everyone said, who will read a book about a, a boy wizard? They told her to change her name. Um, so JK, I think K was her, mid, her, her middle initial. And even after, even after she rose to fame and became a billionaire and you know, an iconic writer, she wrote another book under a pseudonym, and she and, and and I love loved learning about this. She sent it to various agents and publishers, and they said, you know, they wrote back to her without knowing it was J.K. Rowling, and they said, we think you could benefit from a, joining a writing group. And Scott, I think that speaks so incredibly because every single person who is listening or watching has within their hearts and souls some kind of a personal Mount Everest. And it might be writing a book. It might be launching a movement. It might be running a marathon. It might be forgiving the unforgiven. It might be changing the world. It might be, you know, doing something simple. And the very fact, like, I mean, this world, so many people have given up on their dreams. And when they see someone dreaming, when they see someone exemplifying mastery, when they see someone showing love and radiating possibility, when they see someone who's just, you know, modeling the best of human nature, it activates their own regret and it reminds them of their own unmaterialized promise. And rather than often having the maturity to look at that within themselves, it's easier to throw rocks. And I think as leaders, our job is to take the stones that people throw at us and make them into monuments of mastery that stand the test of time. And I think that chapter reminds us that, you know, everyone has an opinion. Instinct is so much more powerful than intellect. Intellect is just, you know, intellect is what is, are the intellectual facts that society has told us are, are true. But every dreamer and every visionary disrupted what people, what civilization said was possible to bring this new innovation into the world. And so I believe inst we must trust our instinct. Instinct is so much more powerful than our intellect. And when we have the bravery and the everyday heroism to trust that silent whisper of our heart that says, here is what I must do to honor my promise and my potential the most remarkable things happen, even if they don't unfold quite the way we thought they would. Robin, last question. Um, there are hundreds more quotes I could uh, tease out. You say education is inoculation against irrelevance. How do you live that in your life? You're a best-selling author, you have a large social media, you're a coach, you're a speaker, you have seminars. Uh, how in your own life do you ensure that education is an inoculation against your own irrelevance? Well, in the Everyday Hero Manifesto, there's that pyramid of peak productivity where I go through a lot of the strategies for exponential productivity, like the world-class EAPA concept, like the five great hours rule, like the tight bubble of total focus. But in a nutshell, Scott, I would say I'm very good at building a weekly schedule. And I think 
your weekly schedule is incredibly powerful. And in my weekly schedule, I actually have lots of time not to be productive. I have lots of time to read. I have time for my nature walks, time, of course, time for my family, time for my meditation. So one of the ways I block out digital distraction, because as I say on the book, an addiction to distraction is the death of our creative production. And very sadly, I see so many leaders and so many young people with, with so much promise spending the best hours of their finest days chasing trivial pursuits that I humbly predict at the end of a life and at the end of a career will amount to very little. And so how do you block out that distraction? The weekly schedule, and there's a whole, I share the methodology in the book, but it's really, really important. I also have that, I also work alone a lot. Right now I'm actually in one of my writing rooms, and so I get lost very often. I go to places where no one can get me. Um, I don't have notifications on my phone, et cetera, et cetera. I also do something you know called going dark every six weeks, and especially before there were these restrictions on travel, but every six weeks I would go to someplace beautiful because I don't think you can breed inspiration if you're not inspired. And so I would go to beautiful cities, you know, Paris or, or, or where, you know, Mauritius, which is a country, of course. And I would go to these places and I wouldn't check email and I wouldn't check my device and I would just renew and I would write and I would do the things that I wanted to do. So I'd say, how do I avoid, you know, a lot of the trivial pursuits and distraction and focus on education or just living life? It, it's your structures, it's your routines, it's your tools, and it's just making the time to be away from your digital devices. Robin, thank you for the uh, gracious investment of your time today in our worldwide audience. This recent book is called The Everyday Hero Manifesto, Activate Your Positivity, Maximize Your Productivity, Serve the World. This book is life-changing. Um, I've been thinking about buying more copies for my family and having us perhaps read, reread a chapter for 101 days, because I think it will take minimally that much time to absorb this. I appreciate your abundance mentality. Um, you mentioned off air that you and Dr. Covey had a chance to present together once. He would, although passed a decade ago, he would have um, enjoyed your friendship and thinking. Thank you for pouring into our audience today. Scott, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure, and I, I felt it's a conversation with a friend, and I hope it's been helpful, and, and you know, keep up your amazing work and shining a light for so many people around the world. And when you say that, that is uh, not lost on our production staff because we have a great team behind the scenes that is you know, helping make this podcast become influential. Thank you, sir, for your time. Thanks for joining us. Enough said. Pick up this book. It will change your life. We'll see you back next week for a new conversation on leadership. <music>